For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Don't miss your free chance to tune into Benzinga's very own bootcamp series on November 20th. If you're looking to dive into new concepts and grow your account, this one's for you. GM, Zinger Nation, my name is Logan Ross, and I'd like to welcome you back to Moon or Bust, your home for all things altcoins and DeFi. We've got a great show prepared for you today, uh, but how you doing, Ryan? What's going on? Doing well, GM, Logan. Happy Thursday and happy Monday to our viewers. Yes, indeed. So before we can get started, I want to let you guys know about a couple of things we have down in the description below. So if you're here for crypto content, uh, we have a new Benzinga crypto channel that we're building out right now. It's the top link in the description below. Uh, and so make sure you get subscribed to that. If you're new to the Benzinga channel overall, make sure you subscribe to this channel that we're on right now. And while you're down there, take a second to smash the like button for us. Uh, Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about the, the Benzinga swag that we have going on? Yeah, we got a ton of Benzinga swag. We have some Mooner bus specific swag. You've probably seen Logan or I wear that ETH hat. We have a Shiba Inu hat, a Bitcoin hat. We got some pretty cool shirts. So definitely check that out. And if you want a discount code, join the Telegram and we'll sauce you 25% off your order. You heard it there first. Uh, and on that note, make sure to connect with us on Twitter. Send us a DM. We'd love to hear from you. Um, but yeah, let's just get right into the show for today. Uh, so without further ado, I would like to welcome AJ and David to Moon or Bust. How are you both doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. We're great, thanks. Yeah, good to meet you both. Yeah, pleasure is all ours. So let's just dive right into it. Um, David, you are the, the founder of the crypto project Chintai, uh, and AJ, you're coming from the investment side from Chimera Wealth. Uh, could starting with David, could you walk us through, you know, your background in crypto, how you found yourself where you are today? Yeah, I mean, my background uh, maybe isn't that uncommon, but it's certainly different from probably a lot of people who are in in the crypto space right now, um, particularly this current generation just coming in. I, I uh, found my way in via uh, a 20 year career in financial services, working for banks and asset managers. And so I got to live through the 2008-9 financial crash. Uh, from seeing it from the very inside and uh, and really got a sense of just how flawed the existing system was, um, that it really wasn't working for us generally. Um, and that, that led me to start looking in 2015, 16 onwards towards uh, disruptive technologies that I could utilize to help uh, improve, improve the financial system in particular. Um, so that, that led me down that first uh, crypto rabbit hole. You know, I started looking at Ethereum uh, beyond Bitcoin and getting a sense of what was possible with smart contracts and, and beyond. Um, but, but really, then uh, that's what led us to uh, creating Chintai, which is a digital asset platform for dynamic forms of issuance and market creation. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole growth of the DeFi sector over the last three years is a phenomenal uh, illustration, I think, of that potential that's coming. Awesome. And AJ? Yeah, so I am a managing partner and chief investment officer of a registered investment advisory firm here in the United States. If we're talking about my crypto expertise, well, I dabbled, you know, right when it became a bit popular in 2017, uh, not gotten too extensively until actually I was introduced to David and what their project is over at Shintai. Uh, that's where not only for my own per personal portfolio, but also as a firm, we've started to dwell a bit more into the space, uh, especially with clients nowadays on both sides of the spectrum, whether you have the younger generation or those who are nearing retirement, really just looking to diversify their uh, assets and portfolios through different areas. So um, yeah, that's pretty much where my exposure came into the space. Awesome, AJ. We're really happy to have both of you on here today. It's great to see both sides, uh, you know, both the, the builders and the investors. Uh, so we're going to get right into it. So, David, could you tell us what Chintai is from a very high level? Yeah, from, from a very high level, um, we actually started out, I, I guess, in the DeFi space before it got called DeFi. Um, back in, in 2017, 
we decided we were going to build out a full on-chain uh, order management system and an exchange and actually try a new concept, which was trading of uh, the utility of tokens. Um, in this case, we started off with network capacity and, and, and it was a great initial use case, although it didn't last that long. Um, but really, once we actually spent all that time building that out, we, we started to realize the sheer amount of time and effort we'd spent issuing our own network token, the checks token. Um, uh, we, we did that post the kind of ICO boom, if you all recall, back in 2017. And it was just around the time that the governments were starting to crack down on some of the scams that had, had erupted throughout that period and, and were starting to make noises like this is actually a security and things. And that really scared off uh, business and, and the promise of mass adoption for a couple of years um, during that period. But nonetheless, we pushed forwards, did, did a full issuance of, of the checks token uh, during that period. And we built an exchange and we realized the entire process of doing that was incredibly complex um, and very, very challenging for anybody else who really wanted to follow in our footsteps. So it, it really, the moment you looked at every other project though, they had a need by and large to issue some sort of token to deploy it on a, on a secondary market and, uh, and have liquidity with it. And so that was the fundamental foundation uh, underlying Chentai as a platform, which was to say, we were gonna provide a solution that would enable dynamic forms of issuance, be it utility tokens and NFTs, right down to um, securities, real estate. Um, so so we've pursued licensing out of Singapore to ensure that we'll be able to uh, do that type of thing with a fully compliant uh, uh, framework as well. And uh, and that, that's a fundamental differentiator too between what, what we're doing and anything else in, in that everything is operating um, on a compliance control framework so that uh, whenever you've got an asset that's that's red, needs to be red compliant and, and handled that way, it can have rules enforced uh, while still interfacing uh, long term potentially with the, the DeFi system too. So we kind of uh, tend tend to describe it to to outsiders as we, we're building the regulatory bridge between traditional finance and DeFi, and we're going to enable that mass adoption uh, curve. And so it's uh, it's an exciting time because the network's uh, about to launch next next month. And uh, yeah, so we're uh, delighted to have uh, Chimera Wealth on board with us as well. Awesome. So AJ, I know Chimera Wealth has a background in real estate. Could you tell me specifically what interested you in the Chintai project? Yeah, so before I forget, um, and we're, we're gonna get into this later on, uh, I do need to disclose that uh, Chimera Wealth, as well as myself and the partners, do have an investment in Shintai uh, as backers. So, uh, yeah, I just have to disclose that out there. But, yeah, what really interested us is, as I mentioned, we're coming from the traditional financial space, right, where there's kind of two aspects. One of those is acting as a fiduciary for our clients, really trying to develop a portfolio that's in their best interests. And as we're getting into this even more complex economic environment, we're having to diversify our investments, not just from the traditional stocks, bonds, mutual funds, right? But also into different asset classes. And that's where the digital asset space is growing, not just in popularity, but acting as a very beneficial uh, diversification tool, regardless of if you believe in Bitcoin or what have you and the fundamentals of it, it is acting as a diversifier for our client portfolios. And I'm not talking about going 100%, right? Uh, you can do something as small as one or five. And then so, yeah, at Chimera Wealth, not only were we doing that aspect, and that's really what attracted us to uh, what the team at Shintai is really doing, providing that platform, but also the compliance and regulatory aspect. Uh, as I just mentioned earlier, right? I have to disclose that, well, we're investors in Shintai. And so our area is very heavily regulated especially following the global financial crisis. And it's for good things, it's for the protection of the investors. And so that's really what attracted us is we're seeing a lot of these projects out there in the digital asset and the crypto space of you know, initial issuance and such, but nothing really that's kind of providing that regulatory or compliant fame framework. And I'll let David, of course, talk more in depth. I don't wanna steal any thunder from him, but uh, that's one component. And then the other side is, yes, what we're working on on a private funding side. I can't give too much information, uh, but we do have some expertise in the real estate as well as some of the venture capital area. So really partnering with Shintai on providing that uh, through this new asset class, digital assets versus doing the traditional route of either bringing up a, 
venture capital firm and only being able to give that exposure to accredited investors and more towards the retail investor, right? The general population. And again, everything we want to do is in a compliant regulatory mindset. So having a project like Shintai to partner with is just perfect for us. AJ, I'm curious to know, did you receive any pushback from your big investors uh, for moving into the crypto space? Were any of them kind of spooked by it? Uh, and if so, how did you handle that? How did you explain it? And did they come around? Yeah, so right now we haven't really gotten much pushback. Uh, I will say there are some clients that we have that uh, it is a new space to them. And really what we try to do, and this is in all aspects of how we deal with clients, is really focus on the educational aspect. Right. What I found is the most difficult portion is just the financial literacy, whether you're talking about crypto or anything, stocks, bonds. And it's really our job to educate our clients. And hey, this is a digital assets uh, that we're really looking into, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, a platform like Shintai or something that we're trying to privately issue. Once you educate the client, from my experience, it's a lot easier to get them to jump on board versus just mm -hmm. say, hey, there's this hot trending token that's out there. I want to invest 10%, right? Uh, so that's really where we focus. And we don't really typically get much pushback once we educate those clients on just informing them. Great to hear. So David, my next question is for you. Which blockchain does Chintai use? And what does your multi-chain architecture look like? Oh, a technical question. I mean, before that, I, I have to say, I'm somewhat shocked you haven't been pushing your clients into all the main coins. You know, look, look at those returns. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I would say that might be wise from a long-term hold perspective, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the underlying protocol. Um, so, um, one of the other lead investors in in the round for us was B1. Um, they're obviously known for uh, launching the EOSIO protocol. Um, however, um, we we selected that because it's highly scalable and configurable, um, and. Although it's had a, a bit of an interesting, uh, I, I think, period over the last two and a half years uh, since the original uh, wider public blockchain was launched, uh, it's actually been very well maintained during that period. And it's, it's, I think there's some encouraging signs in that wider ecosystem. But broadly, what I, I generally look at now is, is what is the underlying linkage potential to multiple other protocols. And, and that's a, just a general demand that's coming from all clients that we, we're talking to now. They want to be able to have that flexibility to list on the very best protocols on, in, the, in the best potential markets, or, or they want to be highly selective maybe about what they do as well. So as an example, if you were to spend all the time going through and issuing a security token and putting controls around the marketplace about who's a participant, maybe you're putting in place mandatory KYC, you've got AML anti-money laundering checks in there as well. And so on and so forth, uh, you, you defeat the whole purpose if you just decide you're going to go and list it on Uniswap, for example, because at that moment, you get the, the, the one of the great aspects of DeFi, which is that it's decentralized and censorship resistant. But the, the problem with that, too, is that at that point, frankly, you know, your securities could be going off and being used for money laundering or being sold to, you know, uh, a country where somebody um, maybe is, is blacklisted elsewhere out of the business environment because there are links to terrorism or something. So from an issuer point of view, this is where they're, they're more interested in other compliance solutions too and saying it would be great to have options to connect in. And so the good news there for us is that we've got uh, a really strong partner um, that and an announcement will, will be going out soon on that, which provides us connectivity, full connectivity to about 30 different other blockchain protocols. And I, I think that's broadly the future that we're going to see, which reminds uh, everybody, I think, of the whole uh, you know underlying protocols of the internet itself, which is no one really cares what some of the technical connectivity issues are. You know, we're, we're talking right now across this, and, and I, I know it's very easy to get really passionate about some of the blockchain protocols, the layer one stuff, but actually they, they can intercommunicate increasingly well. And, and I think from an end user perspective, you can imagine logging into your underlying account, you see your assets, the fact that you might then go and choose to trade it, say on a, one, one exchange or another, and under the surface, it's actually transferring between those chains as part of that process really shouldn't matter to you. And, and that's broadly where we're moving towards, which is uh, encouraging, I think. And it's uh, it's, it's an exciting uh, component we need to, needed to collectively get over the line for achieving mass adoption. Yeah, I think that's a good take. Do you have any plans on integrating with Ethereum in the future? 
yes, we're, we're already able to connect to it. Um, so, for example, uh, the Chex token, our, our network token, um, we had to be we, uh, fairly limited by the initial listings. Uh, we are about to uh, push ahead with listings on a number of uh, Ethereum-based uh, exchanges. And, uh, I mean, it's such a rich ecosystem that even though it has obviously some evident flaws, people talk about, like, the gas fee issue and so on, It's it's got an incredible number of talented developers in there pushing out some really innovative models uh, related to everything from, you know, insurance to lending. Um, and and I think it's the, that type of innovation, which is fantastic for the wider uh, financial system, because it really it gives ideas to the, the wider financial system on what's possible. Uh, even if, you know, at, at a subsequent stage, we find there's some regulatory controls, maybe start to creep in from governments or, or maybe not. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I personally love what they've been doing over the last two years on the DeFi space on, on the Ethereum side. Totally, me too, for sure. Uh, can you give us an overview of the process it takes to tokenize a real-world asset on the blockchain? Yeah, it's actually really easy. <laughs> so, so from from the perspective of, of actually tokenizing anything, it's a much overhyped uh, process in that it really is is relatively straightforward. So, with our platform, for example, now we were on a live uh, call call with a, a client the other day where they they set up the their account got registered and had configured and, and, and tokenized and issued an asset within about five minutes. And it was live on the chain to their exact parameters. And they, they were able to then you know, deploy a secondary market and commence active trading with other people. Now, that that is all well and good. But the problem is, if you're doing that with anything that's actually like a, like a security, for example, with, with controls that need to be placed around that, this is where regulatory compliance and, and this other more complex side kicks in. And, and that's really where um, I would say 90% of the value add really kicks in because tokenization is is inherently going to be something that we all have at our, at our disposal increasingly. I mean, if you think about it with NFTs, what that's shown us is with things like OpenSeas, anybody can issue a token, right? I mean, you guys could have, have a Benzinga token right, right now in a, in a variety of different forms. And you could issue it out pretty fast. Um, so the same really does apply here. But where it comes uh, becomes really uh, relevant is ensuring that all the underlying controls and rules are put in place so that you can not only then say you've issued a security token, but that it actually can bind and, and be handled in exactly the same way as a security. And, and that's how we eventually move to all of the financial system going digital, going to tokens and, uh, and all the associated benefits we'll get from that. And how does holding custody of these real-world assets work? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it can't. It, it, sorry, go on. You, you finish your question. Do you hold custody of the real-world assets that are tokenized on the platform? Uh, well, in, in the case of the regulated ones, we've actually signed partnerships with several um, lo local and international um, digital asset custodial solution providers. Um, again, they're, they're announcements that are going to be going out very soon. Um, on that side of things. However, when you get to things like utility tokens, um, we absolutely could be custodians as well. I think it then becomes something of a network security issue generally. Um, so why should users necessarily have to trust and throw, throw the dice with every single, say, app they sign up to or, or particular uh, asset? It, it kind of generally makes sense that particularly when they're um, doing anything that involves cross-chain, that they're, they're utilizing a provider who maybe has got aspects like insurance, um, and is a established player whose entire business is looking after your uh, people's digital assets securely. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't still take control of them, you know, put them in their own wallet and, and maintain the key. But there are points in time where you're going to want to hand that off to somebody in a secure way and know that, yes, it's moving around the underlying DeFi system here, but, but we're generally comfortable with it. So we're, we're, we're definitely very focused on partnering with firms of that kind of quality to ensure that our users have the maximal protection. Yeah, that's great to hear. It seems like custody is becoming more and more popular, which maybe the earliest adopters of crypto uh, didn't always like or, or you know see the need for. But I think you know to get some sort of mass adoption, eventually retail won't even realize they're inter interacting with blockchain. It will all be taken care of for them, uh, which is you know it's good for some people in, in certain applications, especially when there's there's high value assets at stake. Uh, so speaking of those high value assets, can you tell us uh, what what is the main type of asset that, that Shintai is focused on tokenizing um, and how is it bringing this type of asset to a new audience or a new market? 
Yeah, well, actually, it's it's entirely being client driven. So, as an example, Chimera Wealth. Um, I think AJ, maybe you could speak to this, but I know you know, for example, there is definite interest in in the fractionalization and tokenization of real estate because it, it fundamentally disrupts an asset class like that and adds liquidity to a, to an Ill- illiquid asset class for the first time, which is not to be underestimated what a big deal that could be. But mm-hmm. there's a variety of other things possible. Um, and if you think about a firm like Chimera Wealth that's um, got that potential, it, it really, to some extent, it's almost imagination is, to, to, is one of the core limiters as well as what their client base might be. But I'm just broadly curious, AJ, what what you would say to that one in terms of what you think the the primary asset classes will be, say, for you over the next three years beyond real estate? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things we've been exploring is, of course, real estate. So tokenizing that aspect. And it's not just the physical real estate we're just mentioning in this conversation, but also the forms of debt, right? So if you actually look at the financial markets, the bond market is a massive market. Of course, did you get probably second me on this, it's it's bigger than what we have as, as, as equities. So that's an area we're also looking at Chimera as well, um, whether it's into the mortgage real estate space or just debt in and of itself. Just from my experience in my network, talking to other individuals as well, some of these businesses, uh, I think debt will probably be one of Shintai's biggest players. Um, I know one who's doing, uh, and I think we're, David, I'm, introduce them to you, I can't recall, but they're really looking at doing like a debt reconsolidation, right? And seeing if they can somehow tokenize that. There's other areas too, and I think it's very interesting how innovative some of these entrepreneurs are being in regards to another one I had project I had ran into is looking at doing the like solar energy credits and how that could somehow be tokenized to help incentivize individuals. At Chimera Wealth, I would say our biggest area is, as I mentioned, the real estate space. Uh, that just seems to be where a lot of our clientele is kind of driving us and part of our network in, in-house, as well as, as I mentioned, the loan space for the, the private debt dealing area. Yeah, and, and actually an interesting uh, illustration of, of how difficult this is, is is to predict is that I would have never predicted, for example, that our first go-live market next month would be a carbon market. So... You know, I thought, oh, well, it's bound to be real estate or it's bound to be securities or, or just a standard utility token. But no, it's it's actually the, the global carbon market is forecast, for example, to be um, up to $50 trillion by 2050, um, because obviously the, the, the issue related to um, climate change and so on, and, and just the general challenges of the amount of carbon being dumped into the atmosphere is whether or not people fully agree with all of, all of that is irrelevant because there's wider global consensus on the, the, the need to remove it to sequester it. And so actually there's a huge potential there because the global carbon market is a, a great example of why blockchain technology will gradually pervade and, and move into lots of other sectors beyond what we've seen so far because it's a corrupt sector. You know, the, the carbon credit market can be faked and you can have, end up with stale credits being retraded elsewhere, which is a great way of kind of saying no one really can control this properly and it becomes somewhat meaningless. Uh, you obviously you know, your audience are going to get it better than anybody uh, that blockchain and be able to link uh, some carbon directly removed and then burn those tokens when they've actually been consumed, say, by a government to offset. That, that's a perfect use case for blockchain. And so if we've got that as our launch market, who knows actually what some of the other, you know, really big use cases out there will actually be. Um, I think it's that's the exciting thing about digital assets is that it extends to really almost anything in any way that we we exchange value. Um, and that's that's where uh, it's going to be a fascinating one for us to watch how this evolves over the next five years. I want to touch on the tokenization of real estate a little bit more. How does tokenizing real estate benefit retail investors? Uh, so, so I would say one is providing greater access. Uh, so I had mentioned earlier, right, in regards to tokenizing, not just real estate, but other areas where it's only privy to, for, to give you an example, there's a particular investment, basically a non-traded REIT, a real estate investment trust. Typically, you have to have certain requirements that the investor meets, whether they're an accredited investor, meaning they have like a $1 million net worth or earn 200000 a year for the past two years. There are certain income requirements that they have to meet. So tokenizing some of these real estate's whole physical assets can provide greater access to 
retail investors versus you know other areas of the market where they weren't privy to and that's again that's one of the reasons why us at chimera wealth is really interested in this area of providing greater access on all these different areas not just real estate but those private companies who maybe want to tokenize their equity in some sort of form or fashion to give it to the people and you're seeing that trend grow right we have crowdfunding and stuff like that there are even online platforms that have been doing these kind of REIT deals just in a different method and so it's greater access for me that i would say is the biggest factor david i'm not sure what you'd like to, to add on that uh, yeah, no, I, I think I broadly agree with everything you've said. I mean, uh, really fundamentally to um, tokenization of real estate, uh, it, it does have the potential to to uh, unlock access to an asset class. The, the, the huge proportion of the population right now, the, the, the younger adult population are effectively priced out of. Now, we, we could argue whether or not it's actually a good time to do that, given that we're at cyclical highs on everything. But uh, outside of that, it, it's fundamentally... Um, one of the few asset classes that has literally solid backing um, in terms of asset backing behind it. So it's fundamentally undervalued right now because of the illiquidity issues and the, and the lack of access uh, for, for many to, to be able to trade in and out of it. So for me, I, I just look at it as a, a way that uh, people will be able to fundamentally change uh, how they interact with real estate. They'll, they'll be able to utilize it and dip in and out of it in the same way we do with securities um, over time. But also over time, I think it's going to disrupt how we handle the financing aspects of of, uh, of, of real estate as well. You know that there'll, there'll come a time when the concept of a mortgage may end up becoming obsolete as we know it now, because there's the tokenized. I mean, if you can imagine owning a house, and this is looking ahead in the future at the potential of it, if you can tokenize it in into say a a, mil, a fraction of uh, a million. And uh, each token, therefore, is linked to one millionth of, of the property. Well, the underlying market um, would be able to effectively, you, you, you could borrow those tokens off the market in the form of leasing and pay the holders the equivalent of your, the way you pay the bank right now, your mortgage. And, uh, and over time, you acquire, through some special permissions, more and more of those tokens off the market till you eventually own the house, if you, if you want in such a scenario. Now, that's the type of mechanism that could come into play eventually is an alternative way of actually funding out something as, as uh, simple as a or something as fundamental as a house so um you know I, I think it's not to be underestimated the potential of all of this uh, and again it's really going to come down to a combination of the the innovators coming up with these types of concepts and trying to de deploy them and obviously the, the regulators and governments globally getting comfortable with such such a design as well hmm. aj you mentioned uh, that you suspect real estate bonds and debt may be one of Shinsai's biggest, you know, uh, platforms or applications in the future. Um, could one of you speak to, uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit more detail on how this might work? Well, I can talk about the, the mechanics of it. That's for sure. I mean, I definitely agree with AJ's point that bonds is probably the biggest potential market you know, of all digital assets. I mean, like it or not, there is a hell of a lot of debt sloshing around the world. And uh, it's also fairly fundamental for the way that we uh, we actually conduct different forms of, of uh, commerce generally as well. Um, and it, it's actually very important. It's not always a bad thing. So as an example, um, there are ways that if, you, if you're a company, for example, you don't want to necessarily sell equity in your company just because you need to access to investment capital. The, the idea that you could far more cheaply access and issue your own kind of corporate bond to, uh, to token holders uh, backed by you know various fundamentals that you've provided related to cash flow and so on and then pay that off over two or three years and access that farm you know in, in a way that currently most small companies are priced out of that as, as the type of thing that's possible I mean even some just a single use case like that is a huge deal and uh, right. so I, I do think that broadly it's going to be a big one but as to how it mechanically works well it's programmatically not that dissimilar to the underlying permissions you have with things like a security it's just that whereas with a security you might have things like voting rights and dividends and that type of uh, permissioning built in and actions uh, with bonds you just have bond-like ones instead. So you have coupon payments and you have the underlying dates related to them and you'll have certain default criteria and, and uh, what typically could happen uh, in, in a variety of other scenarios. So they, they just get programmed in and then they get handled. Um, and of course, if it's a digital bond, well, then you're logically also going to have to apply a different set of 
compliant red compliance rules as well. So they'll have to be encoded and built around that to ensure that the, the market operates in a, in a legitimate manner too. But um, yeah, other than that, it, it really is just one of another multitude of new digital asset classes I think we're going to see in the, in the coming two or three years. Yeah, the, the point you make about kind of requiring reporting of, of uh, financial data and, you know, kind of putting on chain the risk that's associated with certain bonds, I think is really interesting. Um, I, I'm by no means a, an expert in the real estate sector, um, but like I, I know that that's one of the big things that led to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008 was that the, the, the debt ratings or like the risk ratings on these bonds uh, were completely fraudulent and, you know, synthetic bonds were created with, with just un, like never ending leverage and, and an entire market was made out of basically thin air, right? Um, so I, I, I see the, the huge need for this uh, product and the service that you guys are providing with, with the regulation as well. Um, so maybe we could touch a little bit on, on the regulatory uh, you know, position we find ourselves in uh, across the world and in the U.S. specifically. Um, what type of measures are you guys you know, proactively taking to avoid security issues in the future? Well, certainly speaking from Shentai's perspective, because compliance is one of the biggest areas we're focused on, uh, it's kind of not a problem. Uh, how, however insane uh, and restrictive a set of regulations may be passed by any given uh, government globally, uh, there's still a set of rules that we can encode and feed into the rules engine, the compliance engine, and enforce. So, for example, at the most extreme level, we can enforce China's current rules on, on crypto, which is a complete ban, <laughs> and just simply you know, block them from any utilization because you put mandatory KYC around the regulated markets, right? And so there's a degree of that. Uh, that's not to say, obviously, breaches couldn't take place, but you can do that. Now, um, it, it, it depends really in terms of how complex and difficult this is to maintain on how frequently they, they change the underlying rules. Um, typically, regulators publish them out in a consultation period, make updates, and they don't tend to rock the boat and change rules too dramatically, too fast, because they need time to, to see how they're going to play out in, in, in terms of whether the intent behind the rule is actually what, what ends up playing out or not. Um, and just generally, the way most regulators operate globally is, is through a kind of consultatory um, uh, process with, with the underlying industry that they're operating and, and regulating. So. Um, you know, the, the, um, a jurisdiction like Singapore is, is very, very high quality. I would argue it's, it's comparable with you know, London and New York as a, as a financial center. And it's really, I think, set itself now as the premier uh, APAC uh, financial hub for me, which is why we selected it as our HQ. But they've also got a regulator that's treading an interesting line between trying to ensure that everything's done the right way, but still trying not to stifle innovation and therefore pass uh, rules that, that, that enable that too. So from that perspective, um, you know, I, I find regulators like that very easy to work with. We, we can encode their rules and give them guidance and, and feedback and, and help shape that process. I think when you get to the U.S., it's a slightly different uh, case because the U.S. is it's got a lot of conflicting different uh, perspectives. And uh, obviously, it's, it's kind of federal, too. So it's got different states with different perspectives as well. Um, that makes it more challenging from from an operational perspective, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I would hope that the U.S. will gradually get to a point where it has a cohesive set of rules that, that everybody can understand, if you like, a level playing field, even if it's not the absolute best. Um, because right now, I think it's generally very challenging for a lot of the digital asset firms in the U.S. to uh, to be able to not just uh, meet every rule, but but also be able to be as competitive as some who are based elsewhere. Totally. And we saw that the SEC went after Uniswap for supporting tokenized stocks earlier this year. Do you guys have any plans on tokenizing stocks as well, or are you going to stay away from that? I mean, it's not on our roadmap right now, um, but there is absolutely nothing to stop, um, you know, an existing exchange, for example, that may, maybe does do all that as part of its business, um, leveraging our platform to deploy out a digital version of that. Now, in fact, we, we certainly could, in theory, do that. I, I suppose for me, uh, I don't get that excited by the idea of tokenizing stock generally because it's already fairly liquid, it's accessible, and relatively cheap. I mean, you just need to look at the size of the equities market, and the average retail investor is in and able to trade um, in it almost as, in fact, arguably more easily than they are with, with crypto right now. 
So from that perspective, I, I think you have to ask the question, well, why generally have certain um, stock tokens appeared as, as, a, as a concept? Well, one is to kind of prove that you don't just have to tie something like a stable coin to the US dollar, for example. You actually can tie it to something as dynamic as a security. Um, but broadly as well, I, I do think that there is ideologically a, a, a very big group in the, in the crypto area who are generally um, determined to try and completely upend and replace the financial system from the inside out. And, and you know, they are awesome in, in many ways in terms of what they're looking to do. The, the challenge with something like that is that if you just go out and flagrantly ignore the regulators and just say, we're going to do that, and we're going to have no controls in place, no KYC, no transaction monitoring, no anti-money laundering controls, eventually, they, you know, you can imagine a scenario where they turn around and say, well, we've analyzed all this chain activity and we can see direct flows of capital going back to drug cartels. And and that's where, you know, the, the DeFi system won't do itself any favors. So. You know, I think there's ideologically some issues here between uh, the, the pragmatic side, like ourselves, who want to actually, you know, enable controls and mass adoption through that and, and then gradually helping influence and change the system and allowing the disruptive technology to kind of do that as well. And then there's another group that just generally want to stick two fingers up at the, the, the entire system and just deploy everything out regardless. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, you only have to look at the likes of Binance for that they actually issued stock tokens as well and, and had to pull them quite rapidly to see that, you know, even an exchange like that with, with the level of power and influence it has was, was unable to uh, withstand pressure from global regulators. So I think broadly what we're seeing with that level of innovation and experimentation is more likely to end up being uh, adopted and pushed out by the, the rest of the financial system with some appropriate controls around it. Yeah, it was certainly two camps uh, as far as like strict centralization and strict decentralization for a long time. Uh, in this market cycle, we've seen a whole bunch of products pop up that kind of embrace both sides and find some middle ground, uh, you know, with an acceptable level of decentralization for the application. So, David, could you talk about how decentralized exactly Shintai is? Yeah, and, and I think we're a very good example of exactly that kind of uh, thing that's coming out. So um, on network launch, we've made a conscious decision to operate on a permission chain, which is effectively a private chain uh, at this stage. And the reason we've done that is because there are a lot of benefits to launching a network and a, and a project of this nature with, with centralization. Um, so having gone from the inside out of a, a network, a, a blockchain network launch that went for the full decentralized option, the problem is that decision making is extremely challenging in the, those environments. And, and I would argue actually that uh, decentralized governance is probably one of the big unsolved challenges for crypto over the next five years. It's, it's something that still hasn't been necessarily mastered. We're still trying different types of governance models. Um, but the intent certainly for Shintai longer term then is to actually decentralize out that network and chain and governance working with, with our, the underlying users and clients to find a model that works for everybody. So one example of that could be that all the largest uh, clients become node validators on that and gradually and obviously um, take part in that or that you could end up with a uh, proposal system related to how upgrades to the network and enhancements are made that, that becomes a vote-based system. I mean, these, these are things that we see already operating on, on other kinds of DAO type structures. But that's that's you know certainly the longer term vision. There will be a, a decentralization of the network um, fundamentally over time, but it needs to be done in a way that also the regulators generally are happy with as well. Um, so for them, they may want uh, to say, well, if you're going to issue and and do all of these regulated products, we still need to have some central point where we can effectively say you're accountable, and and therefore you know we know who we're talking to, because one of the big problems with DAOs in general is that. You know, people then resign from the original positions and no one's clear who, who actually runs it. And people have a habit of thinking that means they're no longer there's no liability risk. But of course, what actually happens is that the regulators can just go after anybody who's a public figure for that network. Could be the, the, the validators, it could be the, the governance people or it could be the developers. And, and as soon as they apply pressure at that level, you, you realize that actually decentralization as a concept is quite malleable and once uh, once authorities put a degree of pressure on you you can see these things actually um, not not proving to be quite as resistant as, as perhaps we, we first thought do you think that this level of regulation is bad for innovation or causes capital flight 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that uh, the smartest thing that broadly governments could do with the DeFi system um, is only crack down on on areas where they can see absolute flagrant uh, examples um, that are that are having a negative impact. So, an example of that, they crack down on the ICO boom. Now, it was innovative, but with zero controls in place, we saw mass fraud, people being ripped off, exit scams. We, we saw why we needed some, some rules in place to, to keep it open and honest. So that's an example there where I, I think fine. But uh, when you're getting experimental token models, uh, trying out a variety of different things, and the, 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 the pace of innovation, if anything, is accelerating, to me, it's, it's not healthy to try and impose rules on something moving that fast. It's actually more interesting and probably wiser generally to step back and let it evolve out for, say, another couple of years. And then one, as it looks to be starting to mature and, and maybe problems are, are more clearly identified, then you can start to actually put in place you know, controls. Um, I, I do think that generally if you over-regulate, you end up stifling innovation. And so... I very much hope that the more light touch approach generally with regards to um, digital asset re regulation is something that regulators globally continue to push for. Uh, and I think in many cases they are, but uh, you do get some who, for example, can't even do something as basic as differentiate between a utility token and a security token. And when we're not doing that, that's a good example of stifling innovation. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. Ryan, I think you have the next question here. Oh yeah, so how does single-sided liquidity provision work? Because it's double-sided on stuff like Uniswap, right? You're providing two assets. With single-sided, you're just providing one, correct? That, that's absolutely correct, yeah. Um, so it's been a, something of a holy grail for a long time, and different types of groups have, have come out with approaches to try and remove this concept of impermanent loss. So for those not familiar, when you act as a liquidity provider on something like Uniswap, you, you inject liquidity on both sides of the pool. So it could be, you know, let, let's say Bitcoin on one side and, and the, the Uni token that it's paired to on the other side. Now, the problem with that is as inherently whichever way the market moves, whether it goes one way or the other, you, you then suffer something called impermanent loss. And it's, um, it, it, it's something that only then gets realized when you take your liquidity back out of the market, but you can end up a net loser to quite substantial amounts um, in terms of what you end up getting back without going into specifics as to why. And therefore, the only way that that, that that is generally handled is by paying very high amounts to the liquidity providers, which actually makes liquidity provision more expensive than it needs to be. Um, if you look at ways around this, one example is insurance, whereby um, collective groups will provide a degree of, uh, that they will take the, the impermanent loss when realized, but they will um, broadly give you coverage for a certain fee so that you, you've got a degree of certainty, you'll get back what you are, but you're, you're gonna accept that there's a, an inherent cost to that as well. Um, that is okay, but actual one-sided liquidity is possible if you actually create an underlying uh, automated market-making algorithm that can handle that. Um, I won't go to the specifics of it, but we patented a, um, a mathematical algorithm we developed in-house on that, that front, um, and it checks out. And, and broadly what that means is it introduces two concepts. So, um, Impermanent loss still exists as a possibility for LPs, but so does a concept called impermanent gain. And you can, therefore, as an, a, a liquidity provider, choose whether or not you could lock in an impermanent gain and, and actually realize a gain or similarly a loss. Uh, and they will, they will do so in response to market conditions and uh, things like the underlying rates being provided to LPs. Um, it's going to add some interesting dynamics to that. But what that fundamentally means from uh, you know, the perspective of DeFi for example, is that provided we get full interfacing um, with our regulatory markets to DeFi in the future as well, which is the, the long-term goal, you'd be able to onboard your, your uh, collateral from somewhere else in the DeFi system the same way we move it around right now. You'd be able to then inject liquidity into just one side of the protocol and you'd be able to get that amount back out again as well, but you'd be able to effectively you know, um, access additional yields. But what that should do uh, is also broadly uh, reduce the fees that actually uh, LPs need to be paid because they're not taking as, as much risk anymore. Interesting. So this uh, impermanent gain, it does not come from the fees? No, it comes from the movements of the, of the, of the market in the same way as impermanent loss does. So mm -hmm. um, you, you've got a, a given exchange rate, let's say, between uh, Bitcoin and check, the, the checks token, our token, and, mm -hmm. and then checks appreciates by a certain amount versus Bitcoin. 
And at that point, when you you as the LP are going to suffer, um, say, say you've gone in on the uh, on, on the check side, you'd suffer or you, you'd get you uh, have impermanent gain. If you've gone in on the Bitcoin side, you'd, you'd have some impermanent loss in that example with, without the balance. Um, but likewise, it, it, it provides you with a way of actually making a decision as to whether or not you think that that movement in the market is long or short term. And you can effectively, as a, a, an LP, participate in the market by making those decisions yourself and saying, I'm going to reduce uh, our exposure um, as a liquidity provider here, because I think actually this is just a, a short term spike. So we'll lock in the impermanent uh, gain here and then we'll, we'll actually inject more liquidity back in when we feel it's reached a more balanced level again. So these are interesting dynamics or, or what it will require instead is for higher rates to be paid to maintain the depth of the pool. Now, uh, we're, we're going to be quite interested to see how some of these uh, dynamics play out. But um, broadly, it's it's definitely uncharted territory in terms of how uh, this is going to operate across a market. Yeah, most definitely. And I don't want to dwell on this for too long, um, but I know this is a complicated topic. So I'd like to show a quick example on Uniswap. So this is an LP position that I have. It's represented by a, an NFT. Uh, and you can see I was providing liquidity between the ETH and mana pair, uh, of which my mana was drained as it took off against ETH. Uh, and so I may have made $300 from fees, but I definitely lost money missing out on all of the gains that MANA made in the meantime. Um, yeah, so that is, is the kind of impermanent loss that we're referring to here. Yeah, that, that's a good example of, uh, well, that, that one's also partly opportunity cost. So it, it could be just, even if you ignored um, something like staking rewards and the fee side of things, if, if you get a movement in that market and then took it back out, you might end up with less mana than you put in in that scenario, for example. And that's mm -hmm. another side to impermanent loss um, that is yeah, gen generally going to be you know, an interesting one. I, I think it's quite a complex area that the average DeFi user generally struggles to fully understand. And uh, that in itself is kind of unhelpful because what people really want is a degree of certainty. They want to know that I'm putting it in, I'm contributing, say, liquidity services and, and therefore I'm going to get reasonably well paid for it. And, and I, I have some high degree of certainty as to what I'm going to get paid for it. They don't really want to sit there and go, might work out really well, could be a complete disaster for me. That, that's never really, uh, you know, a helpful model. And, and that's, I think, again, it showed points to the innovation of DeFi, but also the, the continued innovation as we're starting to try out different uh, configurations that can enhance that further. Most definitely. So, uh, one of the big arguments I see long term for the success of crypto and tokenization is purely for the sake of capital efficiencies alone. So could you talk about how you're able to reduce overhead by over 50 percent through digital asset issuance? Yeah, I mean, this, this is, um, I think, reasonably well understood by a lot of the, uh, the DeFi community, but maybe not um, as somebody who's a more casual crypto user who's, who's just dabbling in. The different token markets, they, they probably don't fully appreciate the efficiency gains that come from blockchain generally, um, because they, they won't necessarily understand the existing structure of the, the, uh, the current financial system. So if you think about every different um, asset manager and bank globally, to varying degrees, they are going to be operating their own internal systems. They're going to have their own uh, teams that, that carry out different forms of uh, checks. And they're going to have to reconcile that with anybody they, they, who is a counterparty that they trade with on the markets. Or, or a, if they're going through a broker, they're still going to have to go through that same underlying process. So if you, if you think about what that sucks up in terms of time, energy, jobs, resources, it's actually astronomical. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands, probably millions of white collar jobs, which are, means people you know, earning well over $100,000 a year. And their job is to check data and to make up for the inefficiency of the fact that we're all sitting around with lots of different computer systems arguing over what the end positions are on databases that can be corrupted and not reflect properly. Now, you know, a distributed database, i.e. a blockchain that sits in the center of that entire process dramatically lowers all of those costs and adds massive efficiency. So really... Um, the best estimates are from the likes of Accenture um, are that between 50 and 70 percent of the back office, which is the side that handles all, all of these reconciliation of positions and settlement, can be completely removed out of the global financial system by uh, embracing blockchain. So that is probably why we're also seeing some quite substantial um, adoption uh, and interest in adoption amongst financial institutions, even though they're not participating with us yet in the DeFi side they can see the underlying potential for them just to shoe this into their existing um, structures in a, in a more efficient way.
Yeah, and I can second that just coming from a financial services firm, right? We have to do audits, third party audits, and then an internal where the partners and I do the accounting. So having this kind of platform where it'll speed up the process, not only save time and hours of what we prepare ourselves or an associate, but also just having a trusted blockchain in this scenario mm -hmm. that we can utilize. On a kind uh, of Sorry, one thing I was only going to say is that, that there is an interesting other perspective on this, which from a regulator perspective too, they don't really know what the hell's going on in the financial system. So they're relying on people sending them reports and, and you know, data dumps of their positions, and then they sort of retroactively may analyze it or may not. If you think about a blockchain, though, where they have, say, permissioned access and can see everything, and, and it's the central golden source of truth throughout the trade lifecycle for a given market, Give them a very powerful position because they can get instant preemptive reporting. They can keep you know, a very close eye on things. Uh, and they don't need to go back and ask, say, AJ and Chimera Wealth to, to send things through. They can just generate it themselves and, and, and look mm -hmm. at it themselves too. And, and that, I think, is a fundamental change in how regulators are going to be able to um, interact in, in the system too. So on a kind of related tangent, we see these automations in blockchain, these automations in AI, machine learning, self-driving cars, uh, self-driving or not self-driving, but you know, you see these checkout kiosks at McDonald's, there's no longer like the people needed uh, and the greater trend towards automation. Uh, a lot of people think that this presents uh, an issue, uh, but there's also the counterpart that there may be metaverse jobs opening up to replace these. And I've heard people like Gary Vee say that potentially long-term uh, there could be more jobs in the metaverse than in the real world. Do you guys see this as a possible outcome? What do you think, AJ? I mean, if time has shown us anything, I think when we have innovative technologies, right, it's really just coming down to adoption, right? As we have things that are automating that think of factories, right? Now we're training those who had those industrial jobs into other aspects of our society. Whether it's going to be metaverse is going to take place more than the physical, that I don't know. Maybe, David, you can provide some clarity there. But I think in the long run, it'll all just come to where we adopt as a society. Yeah, I mean, my perspective on it broadly is that nothing that Facebook now called Meta, that what they presented was original um, or hasn't already been largely put together in different forms by the VR community already um, yeah. on, on, a, on a variety of levels. So even the concept of NFTs, although they're, they're a tokenization, digital assets have existed in gaming environments um, with some quite high value secondary markets for a long time as well, as well as skins and other things like that. Now, um, the, the, the question is, how can it actually fundamentally disrupt how we we engage with each other, particularly on, in a remote world? You know, um, and and I'm definitely bought into that idea that we could. You know, my my team is is located primarily in Germany and Singapore, and I'm on the east coast of the U.S. The idea that I could actually sit in a a virtual office space with them for meetings, where we actually feel like we're we're in the presence of one another, and just engage in a much more uh, dynamic way than we are right now with four squares on, on a on a little screen staring at it. Um, that definitely appeals to me. And I think it will appeal to a lot of other people. And probably the way, therefore, that we'll be able to interact, not just in business, but other forms of uh, um, sports and other things, too, it, it could feed into those, too, for sure. And certainly gaming is, is a given. Um, so I think that personally, therefore, it will overtake the real world from a commerce perspective, undoubtedly. Um, because you'll be able to do things more efficiently in that environment too. You won't be constrained by physics and other aspects of it. Um, and, and therefore, I think we will see a point where people prefer doing business in, in that metaverse concept. Um, but the real world is not going to lose its place, right? I mean, we're, we're still going to want to get out and walk on the beach and, and get fresh air and need to look after our health and sunshine and, frankly, you know, not, not, not back a few beers. Virtual beer doesn't sound as good to me as real beer, for example. So, so you know, I, I think um, that people have to be realistic about this. There has to be, uh, you know, just like we say, there has to be work-life balance. There will have to be meta real-world balance, I think, uh, in that in that future too. And people will realize that it's not healthy to just sit there any more than it is in front of a screen all day. Um, but, yeah, I, I think broadly it has the potential to fundamentally disrupt um, and 
you know, crypto itself will form the underarching backbone that enables the commerce side of that to function properly. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Certainly a crazy world and metaverse that we live in right now. Um, I know that we are getting close to running out of time. Uh, so I want to thank you both, David and AJ, for stopping by today. Uh, but before we wrap it up, I'd just like to give you both the chance. If there's anything else you want to mention, let the people know where to connect with you, where to follow along with, with your respective uh, projects. The floor is yours. Yeah, I'll go first, David, and then I'll let you you close. But uh, yeah, if anyone wants to contact me, my email is aj at chimerawealth.com, or you can visit our website, chimerawealth.com. Um, all I would say is just as an uh, investor perspective, right, always conduct your due diligence. We were joking about meme coins and stuff like that. Um, from the perspective of a financial services, I definitely agree that we are getting to a point where, especially in the United States, into a transitionary period where crypto or digital assets will be massively adoptive. Uh, I don't know how that will look like. I'm luckily not one of those people that makes the rules, but I think we are getting into that position. So a platform like Shintai, those firms like Chimera Wealth, um, and those individuals who are trying to be innovative to help provide greater access, how I mentioned earlier, to the retail investor, whether it is tokenized assets of real estate or debt issuance, another form of equity. Um, just always conduct your due diligence, uh, whether you talk with a financial advisor like us or just hit Reddit as much as possible to mm -hmm. find that information that you need. Yeah, and from our side, um, you can follow us on Twitter at Shintai Network. Um, and we're also on Telegram with that same handle at Shintai Network. Um, but yeah, I, I think for anybody in, in the crypto space who's interested in mass adoption and wants to see where the, the regulatory compliant digital assets side, so things like where tokenized real estate and securities and funds and other types of bonds and, and, and those types of products, uh, if they want to follow and see that starting to actually emerge in real tangible blockchain-based markets, give us a follow. Um, and likewise, if they're passionate about, as, as we are, about this idea of bridging between DeFi and that, that reg space, you know, um, the, the underlying checks token is going to play a core role to that. Then again, um, I, I encourage them to come and join the community. And um, we are uh, definitely going to be having an interesting six to 12 months. So uh, we hope to uh, see more of you join. All right. Thank you guys both so much. Great talking with you. We'd love to have you back on in the future. Um, but yeah, that's it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Logan. Thank you Ryan. Alrighty, Ryan, that is it for this episode of Moon or Bust. I thought that was one of our best conversations ever on the show. I know you're personally really interested in real estate. Uh, so what did you think about that? Yeah, I thought it was so cool. And there are so many far reaching ideas that they brought up with tokenization of real estate and bonds. It reminded me of Radical Markets. I know you, we've mm -hmm. both read that book and I need yeah. to read it again now after this interview. Most definitely. Uh, well, 
If you guys tuned in after the start, we want to point out the Benzinga crypto channel, top link in the description below. If you're new around Benzinga or Moon or Bust, I'd like to say welcome uh, and make sure you subscribe to the main channel and also smash the like button while you're down there. Um, but that's all we have for you today. Ryan, do you have any closing thoughts for us? You know what I'm about to say. What, follow you on Twitter? Yeah, check me out on Twitter. I still don't have as many followers as Logan. It's because I'm cooler than you, man. It's that simple, I guess. Oh, well. You do have a Bitcoin license plate, though, so that's got to be worth something. Hopefully one Bitcoin. <laughs> Maybe one day. All right, that's enough. Let's get out of here. All right. Peace, peace out, out, guys. Did you know nearly all stock price changes of 10% or more result from a single news headline? That's right. News headlines have a unique ability to drive stock prices up or down. These news catalysts create trading opportunities every day. All you need is a little help to reach out and take them. And if you're looking to grow your portfolio, it doesn't matter if your investment budget is small or big. An easy-to-read stream of news headlines will increase your opportunities to profit from price changes in the stock market, consolidate a knowledge-based investment strategy, and grow your portfolio. All you need is Benzinga Pro and its powerful news alerts, price tracking, and portfolio monitoring to make a positive change in your trading performance. We've already helped thousands of retail traders across the world, and they could not be happier. Increase your market knowledge, boost your exposure to big movers, and make informed trades before major price changes. The opportunities are all around you. Subscribe now, and we'll skyrocket your portfolio today. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.